Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Morning, guys. Uh, Today, I want to go uh, super practical as we learn from the man himself, Jesus, uh, about how to build your own personal brand. Today, Jesus is teaching us how to be your own hype guy, uh, how to control the narrative. Uh, Jesus, our sermon title today actually is Jesus the Ultimate Influencer, or Jesus the Hype is Real, or Jesus, this is my favorite, Blood, Wine, and Betrayal, a man who rose to the top from nothing, got canceled, and came back stronger, right? Why are you guys still here, right? You should leave immediately when you hear that, right? That is awful. Like, doesn't it make you kind of like squirmy inside, right? It's kind of gross, right? Uh, What we're really talking about today is two stories of healing, uh, really one healing and one exorcism. But those are kind of a dime a dozen in the book of Matthew. And so what we're actually going to lean into a little bit more today is looking at the way that Jesus or people respond to Jesus and even the way that Jesus coaches people to respond to him. That's what I'm talking about with like the whole branding thing. Jesus is guiding how people view and think of him. He is in some ways controlling the narrative about himself. Uh, He's building some sort of a brand. Now, I know those are kind of like gross and materialistic terms for us. Jesus is actually saying, he's actually like helping us, and Matthew, by telling us about Jesus, is helping us to understand the way that Jesus wanted us to think about him. And like it or not, this is something that you and I have to do today. I mean, it's weird. It feels like it should be like a class that they teach in high school now. You know, like back in my day, they used to teach us. I remember there was like this one section of high school where you had to like learn how to write a check, which now just seems like the most foreign thing. I'm sure they don't do that anymore. Now it's like, here's how you like set up your Instagram so that people can follow it. I'm just kidding. I'm sure they don't use Instagram now. I would say TikTok, but I'm sure the high schoolers have something that none of us even know about. It is only allowed for high schoolers because they're so much cooler than we are. Uh, Man, but living in the year 2023 as we are, this is kind of like a part of life now, whether we like it or not. And it's something that we have to think about, especially as Christians, and we get to look at the way that Jesus actually sort of like made his persona known to people. Uh, And we have to think about it as Christians because Jesus is going to say this in Matthew 10, 1, which we're coming to the end of Matthew 9. And so he's going to say this in Matthew 10. It says, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And if you are a follower follower of Jesus, he actually gives us a similar mandate. Like we're going to, I'm trying not to spoil when we get to chapter 10, all right? But what is happening here is Jesus is taking these 12 guys that have now been hanging out with him for a very short time, if you really think about it. And he says, hey, go and do what I've been doing. Go and do the exact same stuff that I'm interested in. Today, he, gives, he shows that he has authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and he heals every d- disease and every affliction. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, he's giving you the mandate to do what he does. And so today, we're going to look at the way that he coaches people to respond the way that he's doing his stuff. Now, uh, his stuff is not the word that I'm going to use for this for the rest of this sermon. In fact, kingdom work is the word that I'm going to use. By kingdom work, I mean work that brings about the kingdom of God here on earth. Jesus sent out his disciples carrying this good news of the kingdom or gospel of the kingdom, saying, a new king has come, he is here, and he has come to make everything right again. And you as my disciples are going to go out and do that same thing. You're going to carry out your own kingdom work. 
You're going to go out in the world and spread this good news that the king is here, but also you're going to go out doing it, casting out evil spirits, healing, uh, doing all kinds of kingdom work. Now, we may not talk about this so specifically in terms of casting out demons and healing. Maybe you're actually doing that in your everyday life, but I still think, uh, even if you're not doing that, that there's some form of everything that we do when we're like following Jesus, when we're living the way that he calls us to, when we're loving our neighbor, when we're serving the people around us, that we're actually carrying out this exact same kingdom mandate. And so we ought to know how to respond to the world around us. Uh, we're going to do this today through three different statements that are made by three people in this story. First, in verse 30, Jesus says, see that no one knows about it. Jesus heals two blind men and tells them, see that no one knows about it. See, it's probably like a joke, like a dad joke, like see, you get it? see that this is the first time they could see cool uh anyway great thanks i worked really hard on that one no one even cared about it uh jesus tells them see that no one knows about it matthew tells us that they promptly disregarded this stern warning which i love they were like no thanks jesus tells them nonetheless now if you healed two people uh that were blind what do you think you would do about it would you tell somebody about it? You probably would. You'd rent a blimp. It would say, hey, Josh just healed two blind people. You should know about this. Uh, you'd get a billboard. You'd sound a trumpet. You would tell everyone. You would probably even go as far as to make a TikTok about it. Now, the sad thing about living in the time that we live in that is so desensitized to spectacle is that you would heal two blind people, some two blind persons. Uh, someone would videotape you doing it on their phone. Videotape, that's the old way to say it. Uh, they would video you on your phone, and then they would post it on TikTok, and somebody would be like, wow, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then they would keep scrolling up, and they'd be like, oh my gosh, this cat is a friend with a sheep. How weird is that, right? Like, that is the sadness of living in 2023, that like, even if you did one of these amazing Jesus miracles, like, that's, we used to ask, I feel like when I was growing up and I was a kid, before TikTok even existed, I know, I'm dating myself now, uh, you would say like, man, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus was standing right here and he did those things? I don't even think we would care anymore. And I would be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's about as interesting as this odd friendship between this cat and this sheep, you know? Jesus here uh, is saying that we should do this exact opposite thing. And what's weird is we live in a time where we prize pride and bravado, and we say, like, if you do something cool, you should tell somebody about it, right? Like, that's kind of the general idea behind social media. And I'm not trying to, like, diss all of social media or anything like that. I don't think it's evil, and I think used appropriately, it's good. But the general idea behind it is, like, if you're doing something cool, you should tell somebody about it. Jesus here does something much cooler than we could ever possibly do, and he says, see to it that no one knows about it. Jesus does the exact opposite of what our temptation in life is to do, which is to tell everyone about how good of stuff we're doing. And it's crucial to the kingdom work that we're called to. In fact, I don't think that you can do kingdom work if you're not also accompanying it with, or accompanying with it this idea of see that no one knows about it. He takes the humble route. Check out what he tells people during the Sermon on the Mount. If you guys remember, we did this a few months ago. Uh, Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know that what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus here is being like the ultimate Jesus and actually practicing what he preaches. 
He's actually showing us how to live this out. Now, this might have been part of his, like, strategic rolling out of his brand. I'll, I'll stop using that word at some point. But he's actually, he has a plan and a timeline for all of this. So you may hear this and be like, oh, well, he was saying see that no one knows about it because he wasn't ready to fully reveal himself yet. And there may be some validity to that. It's kind of weird in these healing stories. Like, sometimes he tells people this, sometimes he doesn't. He just lets them go on their own way. Either way, he probably knew what these two blind guys were going to be doing. But I think even more than sort of strategically rolling out his timeline, I think he wanted us to see that he wasn't some charlatan. He wasn't some flim-flam man. He wasn't some huckster. Or if you would like some phrases from the year 2023, he wasn't a fake. He wasn't a fraud. He was authentic. He wasn't capping. Was it capping? All right. Yeah, yeah. See, I can do it. Uh, Jesus was showing us here that he was actually doing Like what he said he was going to do. He was actually an authentic person. Because the most suspicious thing that you can possibly do when you heal somebody is then you're like, okay, now go tell 10 people, and they're going to tell 10 people, and they're going to tell 10 people. You need to send out one of those emails that says you're going to die if you don't send it to these next 10 people. Or, you know, I just healed you. I'm going to give you power to heal three more people. So what you do is you find your Facebook friends that you haven't talked to in 10 years, and you send them a message and say, hey, this guy just healed me. Of course, you do the before and after photos. That's very important, right? Like, here, look, I was blind. I couldn't see anything. This is how I used to take pictures. Look at me now. And then you say, hey, if you want to jump in on this, you can actually work under me. No, it wasn't a multi-level marketing scam, right? Like Jesus was saying, see that no one knows about it because he was giving us a model of what Christianity was supposed to look like. And it was never supposed to be a religion of like, hey, let's gather as many people as we possibly can, show them this big spectacle and convince them of what we're saying. Now it is a a religion, a like way of living that says, hey, other people can come and experience this. In fact, you could argue that Paul was very often uh, in the synagogues. He was out in like public venues. He was also in like sort of more private venues. You know, he was out there sharing the gospel by the river, in the jail, in the synagogue, in the marketplace, in the halls of power, wherever he was, he was sharing the gospel. But I think you would be hard-pressed to see a kingdom figure who was out there healing people, who was out there doing kingdom work, and was also accompanying it with this big sort of like showy spectacle kind of thing of saying like, let me see how many people I can show this really good work that I'm doing. No, if we take the model of Jesus, I think what he's doing is walking around healing people as he goes and then actually telling them, see that no one knows about this. This flies in the face of everything that we've come to think about modern living. You want to look at Jesus and be like, picture it didn't happen. A movement like the one that Jesus is putting forth here, if it were happening in our time, would demand that he put out as much promo as possible, that he get the word out. That is not at all how Jesus does it, and that's not how good kingdom work usually works. It's usually quiet. This humility is not just something that is good for Christians. Like, we can all agree, even non-Christians can be like, humility can be a good thing. But I think it's something that's necessary to this kingdom work. I think it's difficult to do kingdom work without it. Without humility, we are no longer grounded. Without humility, we are no longer uh, needy to the one who's actually doing the work. Without humility, our motivations become suspect. Humility is a marker of good kingdom work. Our next statement is found in verse 33. People, after seeing Jesus cast out a demon, say this, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. 
Now, this was a big deal, especially in a past-focused culture, which is what the people around Jesus were living in. They were a people that loved to look backwards and say, hey, this is what has happened all around us. In fact, when they even saw Jesus, some of them tried to categorize him as an Old Testament character. They're like, oh, we get it. You're kind of like another Elijah. You're kind of like maybe John the Baptist coming back from the dead or something like that. That's how these people tried to frame him. And it's weird, if you notice this, this was the reaction of Israelite people seeing Israel's God come to Israel. And their response is, never before has anything like this been seen in Israel. They were shocked. It was so different. It was so strange. It was so surprising to them that Jesus here was not what they expected. The people who witnessed what Jesus was doing were taken by the fact that he was brand new. And it's interesting to note that the people who were commonly Jesus' enemies see this new thing and react in opposition to it, which is what we're going to talk about next. They actually think and accuse him of being like a demon or working for demons. But the people who were benefiting from following Jesus' work, people who were actually seeing him do this kingdom work and actually were learning from him and following him, they were excited about it and they said, never before has anything in Israel been seen like this. Matthew is letting us know, as he does throughout his book, which type of person you should be. Because he's saying basically there's two options here. You can be one of these religious elite people, one of these Pharisees who thinks they know everything and look at something that Jesus is doing and be like, uh, that might be a demon that's doing that. I'm kind of suspect of that. Or you can be a person that looks at something new that Jesus is doing and say never before has anything been seen like this. It's surprising to me that Matthew doesn't quote Isaiah 43 here because all throughout the book of Matthew, he is going back to the Old Testament and he's saying, hey, we warned you this was going to happen. We told you this was going to happen. In Isaiah 43, Isaiah says he prophesies to the people of God that God is going to do a new thing. He's going to do a new thing among you. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. But the people, especially the Pharisees who are expecting something old, something familiar, something that was exactly the same as it was before, missed out on actually seeing Jesus because of their expectations. I wonder uh, how often we actually miss out on what Jesus is trying to do in our midst because it doesn't fit in with our expectations. This is particularly true in church work and even maybe more true in a church plant like ours and a new church. uh, To ask ourselves this question, what new thing is Jesus trying to do? I mean, the church from the very start, even here with Jesus, was born of innovation and creativity. Jesus sets the tone before the church has really started in earnest by saying, like, hey, I'm doing something that you're not expecting. And in fact, your job and my job as a generation of the church, so don't just think of, like, where we are right here and now, but just think of the fact that you are in a long chain of the church throughout all of history. Your job and my job is to keep a focus on the same gospel, the same truth that never, ever changes, while we are sharing it with a changing culture, a changing world, a world that is constantly shifting and changing. You can think about it this way. The present never changes, but the wrapping changes constantly. And that's the way that the church works. If that wasn't the case, then we probably wouldn't be meeting here in a middle school. You'd say to yourself, like, well, the church can't meet in an Alamo draft house. The church can't meet in a middle school. The church can't meet in people's backyards. That's not the way that we do these things. If that were the case, you'd say we can't have Bible study groups that are fun. Right? Those are supposed to be boring. We know, right? The church can't do a new thing. That can't be a good thing. That can't possibly be right. 
If that were the case, we couldn't have a New Year's Eve worship slash party thing that was simultaneously lit and enlightening. Yeah? I don't know if those are right words. <clears throat> Here at Dwell, we try and embrace this. And it makes us a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. Because we kind of have like a there's no bad idea kind of policy. We're willing to try anything once. Want to do brunch as a part of a gathering? We'll do it. Want to let normal, average people read and discuss the Bible together without a curriculum or leader? We will do it. Want to try anything to share the good news of Jesus with people who desperately need, or desperately need it, whether they want it or not? We'll try it. Our only limitations here are our own creativity. And in fact, one of our limitations is the way that we are attached to the ways of the past, the ways that church has always been done. And every time you sort of like, maybe you have an idea, maybe the Holy Spirit's even revealing an idea to you, and it pops up in your head and you say like, well... I don't know if that really fits. It's not the really way that the church works. It's not the way that we've always done things. It's not the way that I grew up with. Every time that kind of idea pops into our head, we ought to be quick to hold it against this standard. To say, man, I don't want to be the guy that misses out on Jesus because I'm too stuck on my own expectations. Obviously, there's limitations to this idea. We shouldn't just try and innovate for innovation's sake. But we have to constantly caution ourselves against getting too stuck, against uh, limiting our own creativity and limiting the way that the Holy Spirit might be leading us. Do you know why we want to try this? Do you know why we want it to be said of Dwell that it is a church of creativity and innovation? It's because in the same way that people looked at Jesus and they said, hey, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. We want people to look at Dwell and say, never has anything been like this or been seen like this in West Denver. And you know why we're willing to try that? Because there has not legitimately been anything else seen like this in our neighborhood in our time. In fact, if you look back at the history of Denver, there's never really been like a huge movement of the Lord. So if you look at like the history of the United States, you have the Great Awakenings. That was when we were on the East Coast, 17, 1800s along the East Coast. And then in the 1900s, you had the Jesus Movement and the Azusa Street Revival. These are two big things. And then a lot of, you know, like big uh, church growth movements in the early 90s happening on both coasts. And it kind of hit some, uh, a little bit of like the fringes of Denver out more so in the suburbs. But never before here in the center of the city, here in the center of the country, has there been a profound movement of God. In fact, the biggest thing that we can point, point to is that in the early 1900s, there was a massive prayer revival. And by massive prayer revival, I mean like tens of thousands of people getting together and saying, God, uh, do something here in Denver. And that was over a hundred years ago. Or if you take a look at our own neighborhood here in West Colfax, this might sound a little prideful, and I, I want to just be careful at like tooting our own horn, but this is what you are experiencing right now as maybe small and unglamorous as this might look is one of the most significant movements of God that have ever occurred in this neighborhood. This neighborhood was started over 100 years ago with a largely Jewish population. You can still see elements of that Orthodox Jewish population here uh, now. There's been a few different movements of uh, churches being started here. Uh, in fact, if you're looking at sort of biblically faithful, what we'd call orthodox churches, uh, there's been two churches that have really thrived here in West Colfax, and uh, one of them peaked sometime in the 80s, the other one might have peaked sometime in the 90s, uh, both sort of like in decline right now. 
there have been cults that have popped up in the neighborhood and done well. There have been all kinds of things that maybe appear like churches, but maybe aren't really churches that have popped up in the neighborhood. But right now, this gathering that is happening right now here in this place is one of the most significant movements of God that have ever happened in West Colfax. It's really kind of crazy when you think about it. This is the exact reason why we have to be willing to do what has never been done or what has never been seen because we're trying to do something that has never been done before. We have to be willing to scrape away all of our expectations, all of our own personal desires, all of our own comforts in the way that we think the church ought to, or, or has to happen. We to be willing to scrape that away and instead replace it with a desire for God to do something new here, for God to do something that has never been done, which is going to call us to think outside the box and think and follow Jesus into places we've never gone before. My hope and my prayer is constantly that God would do something here that we can't even wrap our minds around. That God would do something here that is so beyond the pale of just human influence that we have to turn around and look at it and be like, God did that. None of us could have thought that up. None of us could have brought that about. None of us could have forced that of our own will. And at the very least begins by you and I being on the side of looking at what Jesus is doing and saying, wow, never has anything before been seen like that. And not landing on the other side. Let's talk about that other side for just a moment. Verse 34, he says, or the Pharisees say, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Well, excuse me. That was rude, right? Uh, that's not even like the last time they would say this or the most significant time. In fact, the next time they would say this, he's, they would say that he is working for Beelzebub, a demon that they name by name. And he would say uh, that the kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Now, it's crazy to me to think about this, that he was doing something good. Now, they would see uh, this demon-possessed guy, and they would be like, that's bad. And then Jesus would walk up and be like, demon, get out of there. And they'd be like, he's a demon. That's a really weird thing to say. Like, why are they opposed to him while he's doing things that are good? In fact, these are the religious elite. They're the ones that probably should have been doing this kind of work. And still, they talk trash about Jesus while he's doing good stuff. So what does this tell us, if anything, about how the world might look at you today while you're going about doing your own kingdom work? Well, let's let Jesus answer. He says this to his disciples in John 15. It is one of the last things that Jesus ever says to his disciples before heading to the cross. He says this in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Yeah, calling you a demon, that's probably hate. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I cho or but I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I really, I've talked about this a little bit before. And I even like asked when we were talking in our sermon meeting about like, man, am I hitting this too hard? Is this too much? Am I beating a dead horse? I hate being like feeling like a fear monger. But I think the problem is that many of us grew up in an America and in a culture and even like a global culture that was a little bit more uh, accepting and affirming of people who were following Jesus. 
And the reason why I want to like actually continue to bring this up is not only just because it's here in the text that Jesus experienced something that is like what I think many of us have or will experience in our lifetime. I want to make sure that you are prepared for that day. It's almost like a little bit of like preemptive work in some ways. You know, the, the willpower, the strength, the courage, the trust in Jesus that it actually requires to stand up for your faith has to be built in a long time before you actually hit that trial. You've been told a couple of lies that have unfortunately been experientially true over the past few years. The first is the, the lie that you can be a follower of Jesus and everyone will love you for it. That used to feel true. I don't know if it necessarily was true, but it used to feel good. Where I would say, man, if I was like doing the things that Jesus wants me to do, then everyone's going to at least appreciate it, even if they don't agree with me. The other lie is that you can remain sort of culturally neutral and just sort of go along with the flow and still follow Jesus. Neither of these things are true. Maybe you've faced some sort of persecution like this before. Maybe someone has slandered you the same way that they slandered Jesus. Maybe you haven't, but I feel like one day in your life following Jesus, trying to do kingdom work in the world, it is going to happen. It actually happened one of the first weekends that Dwell ever existed. Uh, we were starting this brand new church. We were meeting over at Cheltenham Elementary, just a few blocks from here. And uh, we had like set out all of our signs. We'd done all of our like prep work, doing a bunch of like social media advertisements and stuff. And we'd done door hangers and trying to invite people to our church and everything. And we're like, hey, we're here to love this neighborhood. We're here to help this neighborhood. We want to do good stuff. Uh, we'd already been serving for a long time at Cheltenham Elementary, doing like unglamorous work of like restocking books on shelves in the library and stuff like that. And then uh, it came the weekend for our launch, and I'm like, of course, obsessively like watching our social media, seeing if anybody's like, you know, reacting and stuff like that, thinking that that was our pathway, you know, like that was how it was going to happen. And I pull up pictures, or I pull it up, and I see that someone has like uh, mentioned Dwell in their like post, and so I like pull up their post, and I see pictures of our signs, I see pictures of like our tent outside, you know, and uh, pictures of even some of our social media that they'd taken. And it was uh, a local aspiring rapper named the Arcane Anarchist. And he says, can someone tell me how this is right? Where is the church separation of church and state? How is a church meeting at a school? Something shady's going on here. I can't believe I send my kid to this school. Man, opium of the masses, SMH. I mean, it's shaking my head for those of you guys who don't know. It was the most bizarre thing. Because what was so shocking about it was, A, that like, he knew about us at all. Uh, B, I don't know how this is a part of his personal brand. He's like aspiring rapper slash church and state warrior or something. I'm not really sure what the deal is there. But I also just couldn't figure out what made this guy so mad. I was like, we're renting out a school. We're paying them money. It's actually good for the school. It works out well for everybody. They're not using the space on Sunday. And I was like, what in the world is going on? Now, I wish I could tell you this story like, you know, and that person turned out to be Matt Bennett or something like that. Uh, that's not actually how the story ends. I did invite the arcane anarchist to church. Uh, we were still building a band back then, and I was like, I don't know, maybe, right? Maybe it could happen. No response, sadly. I just I sent him a very, like, I think, pleasant uh, DM just saying, hey, man, we ran out of the school. It's not like we're a school-sponsored event, so you shouldn't have to worry about separation of church and state. But if you want to come check it out, you can. 
And uh, no response, sadly. We'll see. Still waiting on that one. It's been four years, but maybe, maybe he'll come back. Now, I know that's kind of like a silly example, a silly story, and uh, maybe that's not the way that you've experienced this before. But I think uh, you've probably experienced a small taste of this before. Maybe it's just like a small, like, uh, this is going to sound really silly, but like uh, almost like a microaggression. Could you have a micro-persecution? Is that a thing that happens? Uh, just a thing, like one time I was at a party and I told somebody that I was a pastor, and this lady, like we're standing in like a, you know, convenient kind of party circle that happens, you know? And I said, uh, she's like, what do you do? She's like, or I said, I'm a pastor. And she was like, whoop. She literally did like an about face and like walked away from the, the circle with like no explanation whatsoever, you know? And that's not like a real persecution like Jesus was feeling. But I have heard stories of many of you at your workplaces having to stand up, having to be put in awkward situations where you say, hey, I don't really believe in that. And so far, from what I understand, for most people, it's not resulting in these like huge, you know, taking it to the Supreme Court kind of like things. But I think what ends up happening is we're sort of like losing our footing inch by inch. And eventually, you're going to be put in a situation. I I believe this is going to happen to many of us in our lifetime. You're going to be put in a situation where someone is going to ask you to violate your faith. And it's not going to feel like one day, you know, HR comes down with this policy and it's like, oh, you can't pray to Jesus, like in Daniel or something. But instead, it's just going to be this inch-by-inch thing. And then when they finally release some policy that is in direct confrontation from your faith, everyone else at the company will have already sort of agreed with it and signed on. And that, my friends, is going to be the day when you feel like you are the stranger, you are the outsider. That is going to be the day when you feel like you, like they are calling you the demon. All this stuff that you've been trying to do for good, all serving Jesus, all trying to follow his word and live according to his truth, all these things that you've been trying to do to bring good and love and peace and the kingdom of God about in the world is going to be seen as evil. In that day, uh, you can react in a few different ways. It's going to be disappointing. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be painful. I want to, like, recognize the, like, hurt in that. It's not easy. Like, you know, I feel like a lot of times when pastors get up and they, like, give this sermon, they're like, yeah, they're going to call you a demon just like they did to Jesus. He didn't cry about it. Why are you crying about it? But it's, it's tough. It's hard. These are people that you love. These are people that you care about. It can lead you to despair. It can lead you to withdraw from a world that despises you. It can lead you to a desire for rage. It's typically what happens on the social medias. Become some sort of aggressive social media monster. Like, I'm going to show everybody because I'm going to post this thing. I'm not scared to say it, right? It can even cause you to look at the people who think that you are wrong and evil and to despise them. It's the easiest and most human nature thing to hate those who hate you. I believe it's why Jesus ends his little passage or his little section in John 15, uh, telling his disciples what they're going to face, that they're going to face the exact same thing that he faced. He ends it this way. He says in verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know who sent me. They do not know who sent me. What Jesus is letting us know here is that people who don't know God will oppose the things of God. They might even oppose the people of God. They might even oppose you because you know God. 
You know the one that, Jesus, that sent Jesus. You know Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you know who he is. And Jesus is telling you they are going to oppose you. They will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know who sent me. And tucked into this small, sort of innocuous sentence is the response that I think that we ought to have. The only response is not returning strength for strength. The only response is not turning, returning hate for hate. The only response is not to try and force your own ideas onto them, but instead to introduce them to the one who sent Jesus. The only solution here when you are being slandered, when you are being broken, when you are being maybe rejected, when you are being uh, rejected for jobs, when someone accuses your good work as evil work, is just to respond in giving them Jesus. Using him as the model for your response. He was willing to come. He was willing to belittle himself. He was willing to be degraded. He was willing to be slandered. He was willing to put himself in situations where he would be harmed and ultimately give his life for people that were in opposition to him. This is the same Jesus that we have the opportunity to offer to people even as they are slandering us, even as they are calling us evil. The good news of the gospel is still good news. That while they may reject us, while they may hate us, while they may despise us, the truth is still the truth. That Jesus came to die on the cross for their sins and for mine. And at the end of the day, that is all that we have to offer to the people who might be opposed to us. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org